Let's open up God's Word, Matthew chapter 6. That's where we're going to start this morning. If you need a Bible, one of the ushers can pass you one. You can just raise your hand and they'll give it to you. I shared last week about our vision and framework for this coming year, fully devoted. And I spoke from Luke chapter 9, how being fully devoted means living for God's gain, not our own. It means making God the priority. It means single-minded service. And that, that theme, that framework of fully devoted is going to be, you know, reinforced through all the different series, through all the different books and studies that we're going to be going through in this coming year. But we're going to be spending these next few weeks looking at money in a series that we're calling True Wealth. Because we can't talk about full devotion without addressing what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, right here, verse 24, I just want to paraphrase it. We're going to read it again in full. But he says, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. So it's a fitting conversation for us then in the most prosperous nation in human history. And we in Orange County living in the most prosperous part of the most prosperous nation in human history. I want to give you a couple disclaimers and set expectations for this series before we begin. First... Especially if you're new, I want you to know that we don't typically talk about money. In fact, there are several people here this morning that have been with us since our inception 12 plus years ago, and they can attest that we've never, in fact, gone through a series on money. So if this is your first Sunday, you hit the metaphorical lottery. (laughs) The fact that you just happen to be here for the first time that we've gone through a series on money in over 12 years. Why haven't we emphasize money. Why haven't we gone through a study on this? Well, I believe a lot of the American church in our world today is characterized by wastefulness, by financial manipulation, by, quite frankly, greed. And that has characterized religious institutions all throughout the centuries. If you go back to Jesus's time, you've got the Pharisees, You've got these religious leaders who appear very spiritual, right? Everyone sees them as very spiritual. But Jesus uncovers that all that spirituality was a guise for the fact that they just love money. And they were going to use religion to get money just like somebody else might use business. And I don't believe it's any different in many corners of the American church today with all the you know, book deals and conferences and the exorbitant salaries and the lack of accountability and leadership structures. So I haven't wanted that perception associated with the purity of what God is doing in this branch's community. So I feel responsible to speak explicitly about this and tell you that I don't have any other streams of income in ministry. I haven't written any books. That's a gift to you that I haven't done that. <laughs> Nobody's asking me to speak at any conferences. I don't go to any camps, right? I don't have anything that anyone's inviting me to elsewhere. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. (laughs) I want you guys to know our salaries are set by volunteers in the church. Our lay elder board sets the salaries for our staff team. People like Danny, who was on the stage today, he doesn't gain anything. He gives just like you give. The salaries that represent the staff of this church community are equivalent to those in the public education system. Nobody is getting wealthy off the gifts of this church. We're not supposed to get wealthy off the gifts of the church. I want you guys to know I have no access to the bank accounts. I have no power to write 
checks and to sign checks for any of the finances of this church community because we have strict accountability systems in place so that nothing improper will occur. I do not get a raise if this sermon series goes well. My pay is not determined by how well this goes over with everyone. And I won't know necessarily how well this goes over with everyone because I don't know what people give. I choose not to look because I don't want that to affect my perception of anyone in this community. So as far as objectives, what are we even trying to do? I want to make clear at the outset that there is no bait and switch. By the time we get to the end of this series, there isn't like this, okay, write in your commitment on the card, and then you're going to receive automated updates from the database that tells you if you're keeping up or not with how much you said you were going to give. I, I, I said, that's not happening. Some of you are like, what's happening? No, that's not happening. I am not going to be, by the end of this sermon series, promoting what is the gold standard of American evangelicalism. Hey, give 10%. Give the tithe to the church as if that's God's expectations for us universally. That is not what I'm going to be teaching. What I want to do is represent what God's word says, the principles that God teaches about our finances. And then I want for each of us to go away and pray and to respond and do what God is calling each of us to do. And I'm not exempt from that any more than anyone else in here is because I too am a follower of Christ who wants to apply what he has taught us. So now having said all that, I hope that you can set aside some of your misgivings that occur elsewhere so that we can just let God speak from the authority of his word. Don't try to work and rationalize your way out of it like, oh, because it's going on and because of this that goes on in the world, I don't have to, and I'm going to suddenly find, you know, uh, you know, conflicts in my calendar the next couple weeks until this series is over, you know, oh, I just have some places to be now, guys, like, let's not sidestep this. If it's true and it's from God's word, then it's going to be for our benefit. It's going to be for our growth, and I think we're going to find that already this morning. Let's look here. Starting in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, that really powerful statement of Jesus that's just so obvious and so clear. It helps frame why if we're going to be fully devoted disciples, we've got to face what's going on with our money. Verse 24 of chapter 6, it'll be on the screen as well. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's very simple. It's very straightforward what Jesus is saying here. You understand this if you've ever worked two jobs at the same time. If you've ever had two bosses or you've ever had two supervisors... You know, those two supervisors, those two bosses, they're going to be calling on your loyalty. There might be competing agendas there. You know, if they both want you to work on Monday, you've got the limited resources of just one life. You can't work at two places on one Monday. You know, you've got to decide, am I going to be here or am I going to be there? Somebody's going to be affirmed, somebody's going to be despised, right? I have five bosses. They're called my kids. You know, we do something, you know, heartwarming and nostalgic and loving like family movie night on Friday night. And you go around and you ask them, what movie do you want to watch? Oh, this one. What movie do you want to watch? Not that one, this one. What movie do you want to watch? And they all want a different movie. So then the question is, who's going to be crying? 
I mean, that's it. That's it. And then uh, beautiful, nostalgic, you know, memorable family movie night is just what four kids are going to cry. And what one is going to feel like the favorite. So Jesus says these competing loyalties are an untenable arrangement. And it's eventually going to mean hating one and loving another. Being devoted to one and despising the other. Because you can't be in two places at once. You can't fulfill two competing agendas. Knowing this, Jesus is declarative when it comes to the competing interests of the love of money and the love of God. He says, you cannot serve both. If you serve money, you will be of no service to God. Okay, then, does that mean that money's evil? Is being rich, Andrew, a sin? Am I just at fault because I'm growing up and I'm in the most prosperous county of the most prosperous nation? Is the only solution then, Andrew, that I have to sell everything, give it all up, and move to the third world? And he's like, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up. You being played as me this morning, like, slow down. I get the, you know, metaphorically I'm playing, but th that's sometimes where we can go. We can go into this catastrophic series, uh, you know, of thoughts where we're going, okay, if Jesus says this, then this is the only solution, right? Well, let me clarify that money in itself is not evil. It's what money does to us that is the problem, whether we have a little or we have a lot. This isn't a series that you're exempt from if you say, well, I don't have that much. My money's tied up a lot of places. I'm just struggling to get by. Whether you have a little or you have a lot, it's not money in itself that's the problem. It's what money does to us that can be the problem. We see that implied in what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. Money can become like a master to us. It can guide us, our values, our interests. It can deceive us. You see this in what Paul says to his pastoral apprentice, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You can turn there with me if you'd like. The verses will be on the screen as well. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Paul is talking about how the love of money can be that master that leads us in a decidedly negative way and into a decidedly negative and painful future. He starts with the positive in verse 6. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Oh man, isn't that wonderful? Godliness with contentment is great gain. If you, if you embody those two things, man, in a sense, you're rich. Can you imagine that? If you were, if, if you were godly, and you're in a place of contentment. He goes, well, here, we're starting to talk about true wealth. You know, what, what's the mindset that fuels that? Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Amen, right? That's perspective. You can't, you can't argue with that, Christian or not Christian. If you really have perspective, you know you came in with nothing, and at the end, you're going to leave with nothing and already we're getting into a different mode right this is like kingdom wisdom this is not the stuff that you hear on a regular basis in the world this isn't the kind of messaging you're going to hear anywhere else except in god's word the truth godliness and contentment is great gain we brought nothing into the world we're taking nothing out of it verse 8 if we have food and clothing we'll be content with that Can you imagine that he's saying look if i have food in my belly and I've got clothing on my body. I'm going to be content with that. I'm going to find satisfaction 
with that. Do you know that there are people with multi, multi, multi-million dollar homes on the beach and they don't know contentment? You know it. You know that they're not satisfied. And here's Paul who says, I live a great life. I'm fully satisfied. I'm fully content. And I'm fully content with what? Food and clothing? He didn't even say fine food and designer clothing. (laughs) This This isn't sushi and Gucci he's talking about here. He's saying just food and clothing and I'm satisfied. I'm at peace. I have godly wisdom. I have perspective. Not everyone does. Verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Could he have linked more negative words together? For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with self-inflicted wounds with many griefs. So there is a temptation here that's described that is spiritually fatal, but the trouble isn't money in itself. Rather, it's the love of money that Paul describes, being eager for it, wanting to get rich. That's what can shape our spiritual fate. Think about it this way. There's been studies done on Young people, children, adolescents, and their use of social media, and the effect, the natural effect it has upon them in their development. Studies show that if a child or a young adult views over three hours of social media in the day, they are twice as likely to suffer from mental health issues as a kid that doesn't. And to top it off, there's a study that says that the average young adult is spending three and a half hours a day on social media. So the average adult is experiencing the negative health effects of twice as much the chance of anxiety and depression as another kid. Now, social media is just social media. It's not, it's not living. It, like, it, it's just a tool. It's just a thing. It's an inanimate thing. But in the hands of human beings, it has a decidedly negative influence upon us. It's what it does to us when it's in our hands, right? 46% of teenagers say they feel worse about their body image because of social media. 14% say they feel better, and I'm worried about what has made them feel better. But the 46% overwhelmingly, it's just social media. It's just a tool. It's just an inanimate thing. But in the hands of young people, we have a decidedly negative influence and outcome. It's the same with money. Money in itself, it's just money. It's just neutral. It's just a store of value. But you put it in the hands of human beings. And when it's unexamined and it's unsubmitted before God, it has a decidedly negative influence upon us. This is powerfully illustrated by a parable Jesus gives us of a certain rich man in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. I'm going to turn there. You can turn there. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. The verses will also be on the screen. Here's a story that Jesus tells, one of his parables. It says, he told him this story. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, well, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Well, 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 what do we have here, right? In Luke chapter 12, what is this cute little story about? We begin with a, a rich man. You know, then this is special because maybe I see this every time and I don't remember that I see it, but I saw it afresh this time as I read through it. That when we're just starting, and, and this is what happened when you read the Bible, you read it many times, you see new things. God reveals new things in the same passages. When we start Luke chapter 12, in verse 16, the story begins with him already being rich. He's already rich. And then he strikes oil, right? And then he gets the abundant harvest. But what does the love of money do to him? How does it form him? How does his eagerness for his wealth form him when he gets this abundant additional harvest? Well, he says to himself, man, I don't have space for this. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend some time. I'm going to make some more room so I have more stored up. And then I'll be able to take life easy, serve my own interests. Then I'll finally be content. I'll be happy and I can kick up my feet. Now, you see the trap, right? You see the sickness you see the, the money sickness that's on him. You, you, you see the affliction he has. He's already rich. He could probably do all the things that he's imagining he might do in the future. He could probably already do all those things, but he's not doing them. There's no godliness, no contentment, never enough in the retirement account. And so his temptation leads him to a pit of ruin and destruction. And we're like, man, as he's talking to himself and Andrew's doing the silly voice, you know, I just can't watch. Like, I know, I know where this is going to go from the beginning. It's not going to end well. But isn't that the story of Orange County? Isn't Orange County like that 50-year slow-motion car wreck in the adult lifespan of all the people that are around us here? I mean, there's a lot of time to turn the wheel. And yet, people are still hoarding. And people are still storing. And is our life any different in the end, what did all his storing up and success yield him? The very night as he was on the endorphin high of imagining all the various ways he was going to spend all that excess, right at the pinnacle when he's going, oh, I can't wait to go to that five-star resort on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. You know, he's going, ooh, you know, I'm going to go shopping. I'm going to buy that new purple sash. I'm not kidding, guys. That's how the wealthy spent their money in the ancient world. The most expensive resource in the ancient world, money to amount of weight, was purple dye. That was the most valuable resource in the ancient world because it was very difficult to harvest from snails. And so it was the symbol that you're not the 1%, you're the 0.01% of the world if you wore a purple sash. So I'm telling you, like, that's what this guy's dreaming. And this is the hilarity of the wastefulness of our luxuries in the world. You drop that into a new generation, we go, cool purple sash, bro. You spent how much on that in today's dollars? Right, if you drop that guy into 2023, he's not going to these designer locations. He's going to Purple Galore in Seal Beach. You guys know about that place? Very purple if you haven't been there. 
just going, can you believe what we have in 2023? The choices. That's how silly it is. But that's what he's imagining. That's what he's thinking about. And at that moment that he's dreaming of all that excess, his life was demanded of him. So here he is thinking that he owns his money. Here he is thinking that he owns the land and he owns the forces that yielded the abundant harvest. But then he's discovering he doesn't even own his own life. And neither do we. And there's a day where we're going to be called to account by the true and only master that exists. And every time I read this passage, it's not hard for me to imagine, just leaps out of the page at me, what it would feel like to have the all-powerful creator of the universe single you out and call you a fool. Can you imagine the weight of the all-powerful creator of the universe looking you in the face and calling you a fool? I can't imagine the weight. But what would this guy have been called in the world? Man, if you dropped him into 2023, he'd be doing the hotel conference room circuit. Right? He'd be, he'd be the self-published success. Telling everyone else what they should do to make their life a success. They'd be the energetic, magnetic, YouTube, TikTok personality. But in reality, he's nothing but a damned fool. Literally. Who's going to get what you have prepared for yourself? Now, this isn't a sad story of someone else. It's a cautionary tale for residents of the most prosperous country in world history because verse 21, this is how it will be, Jesus says, with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Don't wonder about whether or not God means this, like there's any uncertainty in the formula here. You don't have to test this principle out. Because this life that we're living right now, it's not a practice test. Like, we're in the middle of the real thing. And it's a time test, and there's going to eventually be a moment where the sound, you know, happens, and we put our pencils down. And it's not that if you or I, you know, just cut a check this morning, then we can somehow secure our salvation. It's not by works that we're saved, but our works reflect the state of our faith. And some eager for money have wandered from the faith that saves. Some who love money have secretly despised the only one who can save in their heart. They despised Jesus Christ. But if we love him, we will be rich toward him. We will store up true wealth and not trust in that which we cannot keep. That's what Paul says to Timothy in the latter part of that passage we read earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's turn back there if you'd like, verse 17. He's going to give us some direction. He's going to say, oh, it's not all negative. There's an opportunity. There's possibilities with the resources the Lord has blessed us with. He says this to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain... Wealth in the world is so uncertain. Guys, it's easy to see this. Did you not notice how when they raised interest rates half a percent, banks disappeared? $120 billion a few months ago, just whoop, where'd it go? It's gone. And there was some ripple effects and people are starting to get nervous and the U.S. government says, oh, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. $120 billion, not that much. We can find that. 
we can print some more of that. And everyone goes, really? You can print more? Yeah, yeah, we can print more. Put your hope in wealth. It's going to be okay. And everyone says, okay. I thought we had something to worry about. The government debt is $33 trillion right now. When I started, which wasn't that long ago, all right? I mean, I'm getting older, but I'm not that old. When I started, we were $14 trillion in debt. Now we're $33 trillion in debt. You think it's a hopeful future? Well, I don't know. Stay tuned. But don't put your hope in wealth. It seems a little bit uncertain to me. Watch the next interest rate raise for what might happen next. Don't trust in wealth. Put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Oh, man, when you have that godliness and you have that contentment with food and clothing, we're going to be satisfied and content. Like, knowing God and godly wisdom unlocks you to enjoy, even if you only have a little. You're able to enjoy your little where someone else isn't able to enjoy their excess. Because you can see how God provides us with everything for our enjoyment. How do we get there? What could that rich man have done that would have been formed by godly wisdom? Verse 18, command those who are rich to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Friends, the world only recognizes one kind of rich, rich with money. But there is a wealth in relationships, right? There is a value in community. There is a capital that is character. And all of that is connected to the true wealth of God, not defined by how much you gain in this world, but how much you give in in proportion to how much you have. That is a rich that the world cannot understand, that kind of wealth. It cannot wrap its mind around. It cannot understand what true wealth is all about. But what if, what if we could see true wealth and true poverty the same way that we're constantly encountering worldly wealth and worldly poverty? Orange County, wealth is in our face all the time. People are going out of their way to show us how much money they have. And they have a variety of ways to do that. Because the variety of ways they do that makes other people a lot of money. You know, if someone can take a 50 cent t-shirt, slap a brand name on it, print it, and it's now $500. And it's not actually worth that much. It's just that now this can be evidence that I have value. I am rich. I am wealthy. And they'll promote that to other people, right? It's the same thing as the purple sash. A couple thousand years from now, that name on that 50 cent t-shirt isn't going to mean a thing, Right? But those are the things that we see around us all the time. That's the messaging. That's the marketing. What if we saw true wealth and true poverty rather than material wealth and material poverty? Do you understand? That's how God sees humankind. He says in Revelation chapter 3 to the church of Laodicea, verse 17, You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, I don't need a thing, right? All that self-talk, right? The master of money guiding their mind. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can actually become rich. So this morning, I'm not here to tell you what to give and where to give it. But I am here to share with you spiritual truth. You and I cannot serve both God 
and money. If we're keeping and hoarding for ourselves, if we're storing up, we're a fool in God's eyes. If we're rich in good deeds, if we're generous and willing to share, we're laying up a firm foundation for the age to come, and we're laying hold of what is true wealth. So I have a few questions for us to consider as we enter into a time of prayer. I just want to put those on the screen. Some of them are just very obvious and blatant on the surface, but they're a little bit more complicated when you begin to consider them in prayer. Are you serving God or serving money? If you're here this morning, likely your aspiration is, man, I'm serving God. Where is your thought? Where is your attention? How is your value system formed? What's going on with your money? So which one are you serving? Do you want to be rich on earth or rich in heaven? What are your aspirations? Does being rich in heaven feel totally unreal and unimportant? Because you can't check the balance online to see how much has been stored that direction? Jesus says it's more real than the balance that you can check online right now. Do you know that? Do you feel that? Or is the aspirations that you have for here? I said this last service, and it sounds kind of silly, you know. The goal for us as Christians is not to keep up with the Joneses. There's so many Joneses in Orange County. There's so many people who are the next level up economically from us. And there's always a next level. When you get to that level, there's another Joneses, right? It's an old phrase. I don't know if young people know it, but... The Josephs represent somebody with more than you, and you've got to keep up with them. That's where your direction is. But, but we're supposed to be different as the church. We're supposed to be able to see the Joneses have a problem. The Joneses have a problem, and we're supposed to be ministering to the Joneses. We can't do that if we're trying to keep up with them. So are we trying to be rich on earth, or are we looking to be rich in heaven? And if you can't come to the answers, Jesus gives us a very simple litmus test. Are you storing up or sharing what you have? And this isn't a message for, oh, God values the wealthy people in here and how much they get to share versus those who are just kind of making it by and them sharing the little bit that they have. It's not about that. And we'll talk about that later in this series. Whether you have a little or a lot, you can share from your lot, you can share from your little. And that's going to show that you're serving the Lord and not serving money. So maybe you don't start with those top questions. You start with the last one and see where the Lord leads you. Let's, let's enter into a time of prayer as the Lord speaks to us dynamically, just as He's spoken dynamically already through His Word. Heavenly Father, we are we're humble before You. We're seeking your wisdom, the wisdom that comes from above. We feel the tension of where we live. We feel that tension if we have a lot. And we have all the possibilities open to us in this playground that is Orange County. Some of us here have very little because we're just trying to get by because we live in Orange County. But there's temptations that go along with that as well. Lord, there is a false promise that comes with money what it does in our hands when it's unsubmitted to you, it masters us, it leads us, it guides us, it deceives us. We end up with self-inflicted pains thinking, oh, if I just get this, if I just get to that level, if I just had this, if I just have more, then the contentment, then the satisfaction will come. And it's just this 
vicious cycle that deepens, deepens, deepens our longing. That happiness gets more elusive. And yet, Lord, here's your way, and it's so challenging, and it's so difficult sometimes for us to come to grips with, and yet that's where contentment is, and yet that's where satisfaction is. That's where true wealth and value is found. That's where we really get the right perspective. We can see things as they actually are. So, Lord, help us. Give us the strength to really allow your spirit to search our hearts and to challenge our values, to reshape our values. Not because there's condemnation in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation. We ask for your grace. But because we want to lay hold of the life that is truly life. We want to be rich in the ways that you recognize our true riches. And we believe that will lead the blessing in this life and in the life to come beyond what this world knows as blessing. So Lord, search our hearts. You say where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Guide our treasure so that our heart can rest more fully in you.